When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. The last thing I wanted to do was walk away from one of the great uh, owners of my life, being the Secretary of Homeland Security. Uh, but I did something wrong and God punished me, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> there has to be a relationship of trust between the president and uh, the chief of staff. I, I don't believe, and I just talked to the president, I don't think I'm being fired today. This is the hardest job I've ever had. This is, in my view, the most important job I ever had. It is not the best job I ever had. Hello and welcome to Trumpcast. I'm Jason DeLeon, producer of the show, and I'm not quite your host for today, but I am your setup man, your opening act, or whatever you want to call it. Don't worry, Jacob, this isn't one of those The Beatles opening for Roy Orbison scenarios. I'm just here because, quite frankly, the news of the weekend rendered an old intro to this show useless. In case you weren't keeping track as you consumed copious amounts of college basketball this weekend, I'll give you a quick rundown of the latest. On Friday evening, President Trump announced that the FBI Deputy Director Andrew McCabe had been fired. In a statement released that night, Attorney General Jeff Sessions cited a lack of candor under oath as the reason behind the firing, though no official report was issued. The now former Deputy Director's departure had been expected since he stepped down from his post in late January. McCabe was using his accumulated vacation days to retire on Sunday with full benefits. In response to the firing, McCabe issued a statement which said the following, quote, I'm being singled out and treated this way because of the role I played, the actions I took, and the events I witnessed in the aftermath of the firing of James Comey. Fast forward to Saturday morning and more news came out as the AP reported that the former deputy director had kept memos about his interactions with the president. So yes, as they say, Lordy, there are memos. Or something like that. Oh, and while all of this was happening, it's worth mentioning that there were a few other developments. John Dowd, one of the president's lawyers, called on the Justice Department to end the special counsel's investigation to ties between Russia and the Trump campaign. That prompted this response from Representative Trey Gowdy on Fox News Sunday with Chris Wallace. If you have an innocent client, Mr. Dowd, act like it. In case that rundown didn't make it clear, there's a unique dysfunction to this White House, unlike anything we've ever seen. It feels as if it should be somebody's job to keep the president's head on straight and to advise him about how to properly act in the face of so many scandals. Oh wait, that job exists. It's John Kelly's. And coming up on today's show, our regular host Jacob Weisberg is going to chat with Chris Whipple, the author of The Gatekeepers, How the White House Chiefs of Staff Define Every Presidency. They'll talk about how John Kelly is defining this one and just what makes for a successful chief of staff. But first, Robert Mueller is said to be zeroing in on a secret meeting that happened in the Seychelles just before Trump's inauguration. That meeting reportedly brought together Eric Prince, a Trump donor and the founder of the private security company Blackwater, with Kirill Dmitriev, who manages a Russian government-controlled wealth fund and is said to be close to Putin. What was the purpose of that meeting? Some say it was to establish a back channel to the Kremlin, but Prince denies that. 
He said he just made the Seychelles trip for business reasons. The meeting with Dmitriev was entirely unplanned and uneventful. Just listen for yourself. Wait, wait a minute. Eric? Eric Prince? Oh, Dmitriev, hey. Yes, Kirill Dmitriev. How are you? Good oh my to gosh. see you. I didn't expect to see you here in the Seychelles. Man. You remember me from shady places. Of course, yeah. I've been yes. in a lot of shady yes, places. Yes, so have I. What a crazy coincidence. You staying in this hotel in the Seychelles? I am staying at this hotel, just here on business. You are staying I'm at this hotel? I'm just here on business. I can't believe I'm seeing you. <laughs> this is coinc- This is major coincidence. What a strange coincidence. What you a know, strange... I, I, I have to be honest. This coincidence is almost unbelievable. This coincidence, is, it stretches the imagination <laughs> I mean... that this is even possible <laughs> that we would meet here. Oh my God. I was just sitting in this booth that's empty. There's a, there's a seat. Oh my gosh. Well, I, I was actually going towards this booth anyways. Let me have a seat. Have a seat. Yes. No, I was just sitting here and I have a little bit of uh, paper that I give you from the bedside of the hotel. Oh, I love those. Yes. And what I was doing here, you'll see, is I was just sketching out, in theory, you know I'm good friends with Putin? Of course. Vladimir? Yeah. I was just sketching out, in theory, what a back-channel communication would look like between uh, my boss, Putin, and, uh, you know, anyone else. Isn't this funny? Oh, Mike, you're not going to believe this. What? Okay, so you know I'm very close to Trump. Now that you say that, now that you say that, yes. Look at my paper. Look what I'm sketching. What is this? (laughs) I was just doodling today, and I thought to myself, what's a fun thing to doodle? You got a flower, you could draw a dog, or maybe you could draw a hypothetical back channel between Trump and Russia. (laughs) Yeah, or a son with a smiley face. Those are the big four. Those are, yeah, typically those are the top four doodles, and I just landed on the back channel one. This is so crazy. I can't believe that we're both here in the Seychelles right now. And they were both doodling back channels that theoretically would dictate how two leaders could connect with okay, each other. Okay, I'm just, okay, this is okay. crazy. Can I'm, I just, this I'm is crazy. Freaking, I'm freaking out I'm just right going to push the, the, the two, two pieces of paper together and just You're, look at Oh, oh my, my gosh, they fit together perfectly. You, this is, this I'm I'm just looking around to see if there's like a hidden there, there's not a hidden camera. Is oh my it? gosh, is there a hidden camera? Here? Oh my god! Because this would be a good joke. <laughs> <laughs> what a delight! I can't believe this. Look oh. at and now look at this. Now theoretically, this could really work as a system for communication back channel between the Kremlin and the White House. Man, I really like the way it looks. It does look really it nice. It looks I'm going good. to kind of put this in the back of my brain because I'm here for business. What yeah. are you here for? Business. Business. Yes, yeah, I am here just... for business as well. Yes, yes, yes. yes nothing well, else. it was so funny and really, what does my daughter say? Random <laughs> to run into you here. OMG, this is so random. Oh, yes, the letters are different in Russian, but it's, oh my God. I might show some friends this just this drawing. Yeah, just keep it keep it close. Keep it secret. Keep it safe. Keep it secret. Keep it safe. Okay. So nice to run into Fun you. Fun coincidence. All, All right. right. Take, care. Take care. Bye. This was crazy. Steve Waltine and Asher Perlman from The Opposition with Jordan Klepper improvised today's sketch in our Brooklyn studio. Joining me in Slate's Brooklyn studio today is Chris Whipple. His book is The Gatekeepers, How the White House Chiefs of Staff Define Every Presidency. Uh, Chris, thanks for joining me on the show today. My pleasure. Great to be here. So I really enjoyed this perspective on it. I mean, there were things I knew and, and things I didn't know. But it's interesting when you go back through this history, I guess a kind of 
argument you make is that in some ways the success of a president depends more than anything else on how effective the chief of staff is. Yeah, you know, it's true. And and this all began, by the way, with a phone call out of the blue from a stranger. Jules Naudet, a documentary producer, wanted to know if I would team with him on a documentary about the White House chiefs, which we did in 2013. But I thought the documentary just barely scratched the surface of this unbelievable untold story of 17, now 18, if you include Priebus, 19 with Kelly, chiefs of staff who really do make the difference between success and failure for every presidency. And they're, they're kind of a club, I think a little like the former White House or presidential speech writers. They have a kind of institutional commitment. And one of the things that was interesting in your book, we'll get to Donald Trump in a little bit, but the Obama people and lots of the, the former chiefs of staff from previous presidents all showed up to try to help Rents Priebus get oriented and be effective in the job. Not they, very successfully, but they tried. They, they tried. Um, it was uh, perhaps mission impossible, as we've been learning for the last year or so. But, um, you know, it began really with uh, Josh Bolton, who was George W. Bush's outgoing chief of staff back in 2008. He invited all the living chiefs to come and give Rahm Emanuel advice on how to be uh, White House chief of staff. And it was this extraordinary gathering. Don Rumsfeld, Leon Panetta, they'd all served as White House Chief of Staff, which is the most grueling, thankless, 24-7 job you can possibly imagine. You get all of the blame, none of the credit. And uh, as, as they went around the table and gave advice to, uh, to Rahm Emanuel, they finally got to Cheney, who was the sitting vice president at the time in the midst of the Iraq War. And he looked up over his glasses and he said, at all costs— control your vice president, which, <laughs> which, of course, brought down the House. Um, <clears throat> so fast forward eight years, they, and um, uh, this time they all came together at Dennis McDonough's invitation, uh, Obama's outgoing chief, to give Reince Priebus the keys to the men's room, as Cheney would put it. And uh, it, was a, it was a fascinating uh, gathering. I'm going to ask you a question, and I want to know what you think, and then I want to know what they think collectively as a group. What makes an effective chief of staff? Is it the is it the person or is it the authority? That is, the question is: Is it the specific abilities uh, and experience that the chief of staff has, or is it a president who is willing to let a chief of staff have the complete authority over how to run things that you need to make it work? It's it's both an extraordinarily difficult, a varied skill set. But also, it's it's useless without having the authority. So um, if a president chooses not to empower a White House chief of staff as first among equals in the White House, there's nothing a chief of staff can do. And but, that's what they think, too, or that's just what you think? That's what they think as yeah, well. Yeah. In fact, when they gathered around that table, 10 of them came to give Priebus uh, advice at the invitation of McDonough in December 2016, and all were in agreement that he would be unsuccessful unless he was empowered by Donald Trump, which, of course, as it turned out, Priebus was not, uh, which is part of the story of the first year. But the skill set is also extraordinary. The White House chief of staff, it's almost impossible to exaggerate the importance of the job. Uh, he's famously the gatekeeper, which means creating time and space for the president to think. He's the so-called honest broker of information, making sure that every decision is teed up with accurate information on every side and, and that only the toughest decisions get into the Oval Office. He's the heat shield who takes all the incoming flack 
for the president. He's the in charge of communications, making sure that everybody is on the same page. He's the person who executes the president's agenda. Uh, and at the end of the day, if that all that weren't enough, maybe the most important thing the chief does is tell the president what he doesn't want to hear. So, and what are the ways in which chiefs of staff screw up? Is it sometimes pushing their own agendas, having their own policy ideas that they want to see put into action? That's that can that's part of it, and and frankly, I think it's um, one of the problems with uh, General Kelly uh, has been that he's he's been partisan, and and reinforced Trump's worst partisan instincts. We can come back to that, but you know the so-called honest brokers of information. Um, that's what the chief of staff has to be, and even even Rahm Emanuel and Dick Cheney, for example, uh, you, you'll never find two more partisan characters, and yet. Those well, now guys, you're talking about Dick Cheney's chief of staff to Gerald Ford when he was right. a very young man. He was that's a very right. different character by the time he became vice president. He was, but even when he was Jerry Ford's 34-year-old White House chief of staff and, as you point out, uh, a very different guy, maybe the most popular guy in Washington, Dick Cheney's politics were still somewhere to the right of Genghis Khan, as somebody put it. And yet you never would have known it in a room with Cheney as White House chief of staff because he was the guy you wanted in the room to bring about consensus. He was the guy, he was the honest broker of information, never put his thumb on the scale, never pushed his own ideological agenda. And and, and I think that was true of Rahm Emanuel as well. He might argue for a uh, you know, a less ambitious health care plan with Barack Obama. But when Obama overruled him, he would salute and execute the policy. You have to be an honest broker in that job because if you're not, people won't go through you. They'll try, they'll do everything to go around you. If they don't, if, if they think that you're blocking their views from getting the president, right, you're not going to be able to run an orderly process. No, that's, that's absolutely true. So it's, it's just, it's just a critical position in, in all the ways we've, we've just described. There's never been a woman as chief of staff. I mean, that's true of a lot of jobs, true of the presidency, obviously, but there does seem to be, this is a real men's club. Is it, do you have any observations yeah. about that? Yeah, it'll, that'll change. I mean, how many women have we had? Not under Donald Trump, I would wager. Probably not. But uh, how many, you know, there was a contender in the Obama White House, Nancy Ann DePaul, who was the brains behind uh, Obamacare. And, yeah, she sure and, was. And she didn't have, but she didn't have the political chops. She didn't, she didn't know the Hill the way Dennis McDonough knew the Hill. So I, I think that, um, you know, we've, we've come close, but there will be one before long. So which presidents really knew how to use a chief of staff? I mean, from the chief of staff's point of view, who were the great presidents? And we're talking about since the Second yeah. World War, <clears throat> since Eisenhower, really, since his offices existed. Yeah, right? I mean, the extraordinary thing, of course, is there's nothing in the Constitution about a White House chief of staff. He's unelected, unconfirmed, hired and fired by the president alone. Or fr um, frequently in Donald Trump's case. Uh, yes, uh -huh. exactly. And um, but So think for a moment about Ronald Reagan and Jimmy Carter. Jimmy Carter was arguably the most intelligent president elected in the 20th century. Uh, trained as a nuclear engineer, he could absorb enormous amounts of information and distill it into policy. Ronald Reagan, not so much, right? But Reagan intuited something that Jimmy Carter never understood and that Donald Trump has failed to grasp. And that is that an outsider president needs a consummate insider to get stuff done on Capitol Hill, and to tell you what you don't want to hear. In Reagan's case, it was James A. Baker III, who had 
actually run the the campaign of his arch rival George H. W. Bush. But Reagan, with a lot of encouragement from people like Stu Spencer, his campaign manager, and others, was persuaded that Baker was the guy he needed. And Jim Baker is a guy who was a 50-year-old, smooth-as-silk Texas lawyer uh, who'd been around the block, He, but he knew the White House. He knew Capitol Hill. Most importantly, he was a guy who was comfortable in his own skin, nothing to prove. He could walk into the Oval Office, close the door, and tell Ronald Reagan hard truths. So Reagan was probably the guy who understood the chief of staff's role probably probably better than anybody else. Although in retrospect, that looks pretty good. And I wrote a biography of Reagan and looked at a lot of this. At the beginning, Reagan had what was called the Troika. He actually empowered three people, Michael Deaver, Ed Meese, and James Baker. And the three of them had to kind of work it out. Now, in a different White House, a different situation, that would have been a recipe for disaster, right? Well, there are Troikas and there are Troikas. <laughs> uh, the Troika in the fir- first year of Donald Trump's White House was was complete, was, uh, was a disaster. Uh, where nobody had any authority. With the Troika in Reagan's case, there was never any doubt about who was first among equals um, in that Troika, and it was James Baker from the beginning. In fact, there's a story I tell in the book about um, when Baker was when he got the nod, Reagan turned to him and said, Jim, go make it right with Ed. Ed Meese was the person he was referring to who was the odds-on favorite to become Reagan's chief of staff. He'd come from Sacramento. He'd been his chief of staff there. Baker invited Meese to breakfast. They sat down. He pulled out his legal pad and he said, Ed, let's let's just divvy things up lawyer to lawyer. <laughs> well, Baker wound up with all the important authority. I'll take foreign policy, domestic (laughs) policy, and economic (laughs) policy, and you can have the other stuff. Meese got a lot of really fancy titles, you know, counselor to the president, cabinet rank. Uh, But Baker got everything that mattered. He got control of personnel. He got control of the Oval Office. He got control of speech writing and communications. That was never a troika of three equals. And how about the chiefs of staff themselves. I mean, who really stands out other than James Baker as really effective in the job? Leon Panetta uh, is right up there with James Baker as as one of the top two in my mind. You know, there probably wouldn't have been, uh, I mean, you, it's arguably, could you could say that there might not have been a second Clinton term without Leon Panetta. A year and a half in, Clinton was really dead in the water, uh, really struggling on a number of fronts unable to get any real traction and 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 also distracted by scandals. And um, there was a kind of intervention. Hillary Clinton and Al Gore basically took uh, Panetta to Camp David and locked him in a cabin. Uh, he was the OMB director. He didn't want to be chief of staff. He yeah, loved that. being OMB director. As Leon put it to me, I was in a room with Bill Clinton, Hillary Clinton, Al Gore, and Tipper Gore. I knew this wasn't going to be a fair fight. And by the time he left that cabin, he was uh, he was anointed as the next White House chief. Uh, Panetta was described to me by uh, Bob Reich, uh, the labor secretary under Clinton, said, you know, Leon was an iron fist inside a velvet glove. Panetta proved that you don't have to be uh, what Haldeman was called, which was Nixon's pluperfect son of a bitch. Yeah. You can actually do it with a smile. Uh, but Panetta had real authority. 
He was able, like Baker, he was able to walk into the office, Oval Office, and tell Bill Clinton's hard truths. Panetta had been a congressman. He'd worked for Richard Nixon. It does seem to be a recurrent theme that experience matters in this job and connections matter on both sides of the aisle. All of that and and political savvy, which is uh, sadly lacking in the White House uh, as we speak uh, under John Kelly. You know, one of the um, presidents, Donald Trump is not the first president to come into power full of hubris, thinking he's the smartest guy in the room, uh, intoxicated by political victory. Most presidents get over it. Most presidents ultimately figure out that there's a difference between governing and campaigning. Um, you know, in campaigning, you, you demonize, you divide, you disrupt. Governing is completely different. And it's a White House chief's job to help a president figure that out. John Kelly, in my mind, has reinforced all of Trump's worst partisan instincts. And, and, and we learned just how politically inept he was uh, the day that he uh, stepped up behind that lectern in the White House press briefing room and, and told a false story about Representative Wilson – He's shown that he doesn't have— That was the congressman, just to remind people. I mean, this stuff comes so fast and furious, but the the uh, woman whose son was killed on the raid— Trump Trump had been accused of, uh, of being insensitive, right. uh, callous in his handling of the Gold Star Widow, whose uh, right. husband died in, in— Oh, it was her husband. I'm sorry. Whose yeah. husband died in Niger. And, uh, Niger, okay. And Cong- Congresswoman Wilson happened to be on the with the widow— on a speakerphone when Trump called. So uh, for whatever reason, Kelly may have been furious. Um, he, he may have been, he may have felt that the sanctity of that that phone call from Trump to the widow had somehow been violated by this congressman. But for whatever reason, he was, he was just uh, completely out of line, you know, maligning this congresswoman with, with what was a false story. So that was terrible, but anybody can have a bad bad day in the job. I mean, a, a lot of people did think that Kelly was going to be the force of discipline and order to the extent you could have one around Donald Trump. And to some extent he has. He has brought incremental order, I think, to a totally chaotic person in a totally chaotic White House. But is he just – is the problem him or is the problem what anybody could do with Donald Trump? Well, let me – I'll start with the first part of that question. I mean, he, John Kelly did, it seems to me, and at least in the at the outset, he made some very, very good moves. I mean, throwing uh, Anthony Scaramucci over the White House fence was a was a great opening move, and he certainly brought some order to the White House. And the the, the Oval Office door was closed more often. Uh, people reported through him to see Trump. All of that was a plus. But again, we we look up. Six months later, and you've got a staff secretary um, without a security clearance who's been accused of uh, beating his wife. You've got 30 other people without security clearances, including uh, the guy in charge of Middle East peace. And so I think Kelly has really failed even by his own very narrow definition of the job. He famously said he wasn't here, he wasn't put on this earth to manage Donald Trump just to make the uh, the information flow efficient and make the West Wing run in an orderly fashion. That's not ha- clearly that's not happening. So I I I think he's his failure in a sense is 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 greater than Priebus's because Kelly was empowered 
in a way that Priebus never was. Uh, Priebus never had a chance. You have a new last chapter in this book. You uh, Priebus talked to you. I think maybe the only interview he's given uh, about his experience as White House chief of staff. What do you think happened there, and how does he see it now? Well, you know, I mean, this has been the most dysfunctional White House in modern history. Um, that's that's no secret. But what it it turns out that it was an even wilder ride than it <laughs> than it looked like from the outside. Because the first thing that that Reince Priebus told me off the record and he subsequently put it on the record, was take everything you've heard and multiply it by 50. Now, he was talking about a number of things, and, and we've alluded to some of them, the fact that there were three White House chiefs, uh, not one. There was Steve Bannon and Kushner, so he didn't have the authority that he needed. But I think he's also he also told me the story about, you know, for every half-baked, ill-conceived, Trump policy, like the executive order on immigration, for example, which was blocked in the courts and was a fiasco. Uh, Wright's previous claims that he stopped 10 ideas that were worse. And uh, when I talked to Steve Bannon about that, he, he, he joked with me. He said, no, no. He said, Wright stopped 20, <laughs> and 10 of them were my ideas. Um, yeah, I find that all very plausible. But <laughs> so so um, here's an example that, that Priebus told me about. Right out of the gate, Donald Trump wanted to rip up NAFTA, and he wanted to impose a 25% tariff on steel, 25% tariff on automobiles. Well, Priebus and others had to sit Trump down and explain to him, remember those farmers in Wisconsin? You know, if you rip up NAFTA, you're going to kill them. Uh, it, it's it's not politically possible. You can't do it. And he agreed to to put off or renegotiate NAFTA. Um, so those are the kinds of conversations that chiefs of staff have to have. To have. I mean, you know, Ronald Reagan, uh, when he came into office, was determined to attack, to tackle rather, Social Security reform. Jim Baker was savvy enough to know that Social Security reform is the third rail of American politics, and he told Reagan, you touch it, you'll be electrocuted. Well, as a result, And with help from others, including Nancy, uh, they persuaded Reagan to pivot to the economy, uh, tax cuts, and the rest is history. Priebus also takes credit when he talked to you for uh, talking Trump down from firing Sessions after after the Comey thing. I mean, that was that is, I guess, from Trump's point of view. Well, Trump should be thanking him for that because that could have been the end of the Trump presidency if Trump had gone through with it. Well, it was a, actually an extraordinary story that Priebus told me and had not been reported before, and that is that Sessions had actually resigned. But you remember the, the it was May 17th in the Oval Office when uh, Trump uh, humiliated Sessions, yeah. called him an idiot. Uh, Sessions, uh, not only did he did he storm out of the Oval Office, but he he announced that he was resigning. Well, Don McGahn, the, the White House counsel, went bursting into Priebus's office and said, not only do we have a special counsel, but Jeff Sessions has just resigned. And Priebus said, what? You must be kidding me. And raced down to the West Wing parking lot, found the attorney general sitting in his car with the engine running, opened the door, jumped in, and essentially dragged Sessions back up into the West Wing to his office where Steve Bannon and Mike Pence came in and helped to uh, persuade Sessions to to rescind his his resignation. Um, so it's and 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 Priebus said to me, and you know what, Chris, that was just another day at the office. <laughs>
there comes a point in a lot of administrations when there's no trust. There is people, there's constant infighting, there's leaking to the press, and it becomes very corrosive. It obviously happened in the Nixon administration at some point. It happens at some level and at some point a lot of administrations. The Trump administration, that seemed to be the state of play from day one. How do you run a White House when nobody trusts anybody and when nobody should trust anybody because, frankly, they're a bunch of liars? Well, it's absolutely true, and it and it begins as as my chapter begins, uh, literally on the morning of January twenty first, a little after six a.m., when Reince Priebus is at home watching the cable news coverage of the inauguration. He looks, his phone is going off, and guess who? It's Donald Trump. He's furious. He's livid. He's screaming at Priebus because he's just seen a picture of his inauguration side by side with Obama's in the Washington Post with his crowd dwarfed by his predecessors. He's yelling at Priebus to get this fixed immediately, fix this story somehow. Priebus is thinking to himself, do I really need to go to war with the president of the United States on day one? Do we really need to have a controversy over the over the inaugural photos? Well, hours later, as we all know, Sean Spicer stepped up to the lectern in the White House press briefing room and told those flagrant lies, uh, which were then parodied mercilessly <laughs> on Saturday Night Live. But in this sense, there was nothing funny about it because truth was the first casualty on the first day uh, of this presidency. Credibility was the second casualty. Uh, lie upon lie upon lie have been told ever since on matters large and small. And that's not just on Donald Trump. That's on the chief of staff who enabled that and who approved uh, Sean Spicer's suicide mission, uh, if you will, on that first morning. What's a positive scenario? Donald Trump is clearly not someone who's uh, much capable of, of personal change or growth. But if he gets desperate enough, would he accept maybe a different a different way of doing business? You know, that's a whole level of um, armchair psychology that I <clears throat> I don't think I'm qualified to to perform. I mean, I, what I can tell you is that, you know, we've seen in the history of presidencies from Nixon uh, to the present, we've seen what happens when presidents try to govern uh, according to a model like this. Uh, it, it, it never ends well. And um, I'm, I'm afraid it's, it's just going to get uglier as this presidency proceeds. I've been speaking to Chris Whipple. His book about White House Chiefs of Staff is called The Gatekeepers. The paperback edition is just out and has a new last chapter about Donald Trump. Chris, thanks for joining me on the show today. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. And that's today's show. Are you caught up on Trumpcast? If not, today might be the day you go back and catch up. We had some great conversations last week with Hannah Seligson about Ivanka Trump and why her fingerprints inside the Mueller investigation go undetected. We also ran through some of the best Trump-Russia angles with Michael Isikoff and David Korn of the new, sure-to-be best-selling book, Russian Roulette. And we did a live show from PutinCon on Friday, which we posted on Sunday morning. It's less Trump-specific, but still some very interesting insight into the recent poisonings and murders committed in the UK. That's all available right now, so go catch up. Perhaps drop a five-star rating over on Apple Podcasts for us while you're at it. And we'll be back later this week with more Trumpcast. Trumpcast.